Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with one of the most in-demand classical music conductors in the world, Daya Stasevska. We'll talk about her journey to taking the podium. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to discuss a new revival of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Later, I'll be talking with the director of the Northern Illinois University Jazz Orchestra as the band prepares to compete in one of the most prestigious collegiate jazz competitions in the country. And I'll revisit my conversation with a local photographer behind some of the most candid images of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that we have today. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. The world of classical music has traditionally been dominated by men. There are signs that orchestras are paying more attention to gender equality, though change has been gradual. The classical music opera website Bachtrack puts together a statistical report every year that highlights the most performed composers, the busiest orchestras, and the most in-demand conductors. In 2013, the organization reported there was only one woman on the list of busiest conductors. Last year, in 2022, there were 12 women in the top 100. Coming in at number 61 on that list of busiest conductors is 38-year-old Dalia Stasevska. The Finnish-Ukrainian conductor is quickly becoming one of the most in-demand classical music conductors in the world. Stasevska is the chief conductor for the Lhati Symphony Orchestra in Finland and the principal guest conductor for the BBC Symphony Orchestra. When she's not in Finland, she's on the road leading some of the most prestigious orchestras in the world. Stasevska made her Chicago Symphony Orchestra debut last month. I caught up with her backstage between rehearsals at Orchestra Hall for a wide-ranging conversation that touched on her initial attraction to classical music, navigating gender equalities, and her thoughts on the current situation in her native Ukraine. Growing up, I, I read something. You came from an, an art-centric household. Your parents are both artists. Both parents are painters, so art was something uh, very present in uh, our household and upbringing, but uh, there were no musicians in family before me. <laughs> so how did you get turned on? Was a violin first? Yeah, I think that my it came actually from my grandmother because she loved classical music so much. She tried to make my father to become a pianist, but he wasn't too interested in that. So uh, the father passed it to us, uh-huh. <laughs> to me and my two little brothers. And uh, it was nothing really actually that we could choose. We were just told that you will become a musician. <laughs> so and we were like, okay. And it turned out uh, pretty good. We loved it. Yeah. Yeah. When you were growing up, was there more classical music in your house or did you listen to contemporary music also? To be honest, I think before I started playing violin, there was only folk music in our household. So my father being Ukrainian and um, 
emigrated since since he was 18. I think he was of course like very homesick. So uh, he always taught us to sing Ukrainian folk songs. Then after I picked up the violin and my siblings cello and piano, there was a lot of classical music after that. And my grandmother, she loved classical music, so she introduced a lot composers to us and always went to concerts with us. Uh, Yeah, so it kind of like took over. But I don't think uh, we listened much more to anything else. To be honest, we were interested in pop music, but we were not allowed. (laughs) No, it was very strict household, unfortunately. But uh, secretly, I listened (laughs) to Spice Girls. Nice, nice. And then as you got older, did it become clear that you wanted to pursue a life in music? Yeah, it was quite clear for me. I think the the changing moment was for me when I was around 12, 13 years old. And I heard for the first time opera and symphony orchestra playing. So that was a mind-blowing experience to hear such an instrument and I uh, started listening very actively to all orchestra repertoire. I started to play myself in orchestras, student orchestras, and it's something that I really, really enjoyed, mostly because I'm a social person, so I thought it was much more fun to play with your friends than (laughs) practice on your own. Yeah, so I think ever since it became for me clear that uh, I want to become musician and I want to become an orchestra musician. I think I read something that was at Madame Butterfly that that flipped the switch. Oh yeah, yeah, and you can just imagine I was ten, twelve, thirteen years old teenage girl, and then this dramatic story and uh, beautiful singing and fantastic orchestra. I mean, it just blew my mind, and I became really addicted to opera repertoire. So I I listened everything what there was available in our tiny library in a city called Tampere, where I grew up. Any language or Italian? Everything, everything. everything. I think my second opera that I listened was by Ligeti, Le Grand, Le Grand Macabre. Mm-hmm. So it was <laughs> completely something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I listened to everything. And then did you go to college then to, to study music? Yes, in Finland we have... Uh, a music university that we call it. We have only one. It's by named by Sibelius. So it's Sibelius Academy. I entered there when I was 17 years old and I first studied there as a violinist. Then after three years I switched and entered again as a violist. And I think three years later I entered it for the third time as a conductor. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. What led to that transition as far as wanting to be a conductor? So when I was in my third year at the Sibelius Academy, I saw for the first time a female conductor. And that was really, for me, a key-changing moment. Because, uh, first of all, I've never seen anybody conducting orchestra that looks like me. So it was really like a role model moment. And it made me think that I've already loved so much orchestra music, I've studied the scores, maybe this is something that I could do as well. So I gathered my courage for a couple of months and approached the professor of Sibelius Academy conducting class and asked him that could I try? Mm -hmm. And he said, 
Hell yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had a receipt in his pocket and he wrote a phone number uh, on the back of the receipt and said, call there. This is the director of a masterclass or manager of the ma masterclass that is going to be in half a, half a year. So I called there and I, I applied and I took my first conducting masterclass half year later and I've never looked back. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek and I'm talking with renowned conductor Dalia Stasevska. In your opinion, what are the most important skills for a classical music conductor to have? Does your experience as a, a musician help in that regard? First and most important thing is that you need to love the music. It's like basis of everything. Mm -hmm. You really need to love it, live it constantly. The second thing is that uh, you have to have a really good communicating skills and you need to enjoy working <laughs> with other people, obviously. And it's, it's really like uh, being a team leader, you know, nothing more different like being a team leader of a, a big company or, or a football team. Uh, you practice together, you, you work together and you perform together and you need to inspire people uh, to get them excited, to believe in your vision. And also you need to listen to people and really see the talents that you have and give space to people. So it's a, it's a combination of, of uh, really team working. When you're up in front of an orchestra, what are you communicating to the musicians with your movements? You're, you're keeping time and then emphasizing certain inflection points? We have universal language, so this is something that we study. So there's uh, certain patterns, uh, what we show to the musicians. Uh, with holding baton so that the musicians in the most far can can see. Uh, so we need to show the beat and the speed of the beat and the rhythm. Yeah, And this we have a universal language how it goes. So one goes straight down, two goes a little bit from down to the side, mm. three is if music goes in three we beat kind of like a triangle and so on. It's like variation of this pattern. So this is something that is really important. Then the left hand is the emotion hand. So of course, when we bring hand up, it means play louder. When we bring hand down, it means quieter. Then we can show, uh, for example, uh, that play shorter or then show horizontal movements, play longer. Mm. And these are like the basic things. And then you have eyes with what you can show more. Uh, so much more and then you start to variate and find your own style that works but the most important thing is that the right hand or if you're left-handed the hand which holds baton the um, the uh, the beating meter and the choreography is always the same so there is a certain rule to that everything else we can improvise and find our own style that was a good way to describe it so you mentioned the first time you saw a woman conducting that changed the way you thought about things. And I know things are changing, so we're seeing more 
women, but still it's the numbers of women musicians in classical music, women composers, women conductors is still very low. Is it challenging as a, as a woman navigating the, the classical musical world in 2022? I feel really incredibly um, happy that I can live in this time and be a musician in this time. Uh, when I started my career as a conductor, it was like one or two years before Me Too happened. And I can say that this uh, female revolution, you could really feel it. Because uh, our industry, our organizations really uh, needed to look themselves in the mirror and say, hey, we don't have enough of female representation both in conductors and especially in the composers as well. So that was a really key changing moment. The second important thing that happened was uh, Black Lives Matter movement that even more expanded the equality discussion in our industry. And it's fantastic to see how much our industry has changed for better in such a short time. And suddenly our organization, our industry is starting to represent people and uh, to represent people and also look like the communities around us. We are starting to hear stories by different people from different backgrounds, by, compo by composers, but also by performance. And I, I think that is it has done so good to our industry for everybody. And of course, you can't change the <laughs> direction of uh, such a heavy boat in a one day. So I think that in 10 years, I mean, this will look even more different. And maybe we don't even have to talk about these <laughs> issues, you know. And of course, um, as, a, as a woman, um, um, I think that I myself always pictured myself as a musician. I never thought of myself like a woman in this industry. Uh, I came to this, to becoming a conductor or musician because I loved music, you know, mm -hmm. and I find it so fascinating to do this profession. And it's only later that I realized that actually there's not many around of us. And uh, I understand that this is also not something that women have been seeing as a career possibility. It has been much more difficult to climb up, you know, and also like in my story, I just didn't see anybody around. It never occurred to my mind earlier. But I think that uh, why it will change in 10 years even more, because there are more of us. There's not enough, but still there's so much more now than five years ago. And uh, girls are seeing around the world that we are conquering the stages and they see this as a possibility for a career also. So this is um, uh, why I think that we still need a little bit of time. Uh, but uh, in 10 years, I'm sure it will be a completely different story. Yeah. So we talked about your father's from Ukraine. You were born there. Um, obviously, a lot happening in that part of the world. Did you feel responsibility as uh, an artist to, to speak out when that conflict started in early 2022? Definitely. When the war broke, uh, I understood immediately that 
this is a different situation than in 2014, that this was way much more serious. I was uh, on my way to Seattle to conduct the orchestra. And uh, to be honest, I uh, thought to cancel all my engagements like for the next half year and to become a full-time volunteer. And the orchestra management and my manager, uh, they said to me that we really respect your decision if this is what you want to do, but maybe think overnight. So I did, and uh, I decided that I'm not going to cancel my work, that though I can't change the world by conducting music, but I have fantastic audience, I have fantastic platform around the world, and I can s use my mouth and speak to people and to tell what's going on in Ukraine, try to unite people, try to tell them what Ukraine needs, what kind of help we need in Ukraine. And I found that also audiences needed this moment for us to actually discuss this really difficult subject and to uh, discuss emotions that we need to deal daily with. And I started kind of like my <laughs> own musical front. Quite often before concerts, I might give a speech to the audience. We might play after that uh, Ukrainian national anthem or maybe another Ukraine piece by Ukrainian composer. And it gives us a really good space to really um, deal with these emotions, uh, difficult emotions that that we are facing uh, as Ukrainians and as uh, uh, countries that are democratic and that are fighting for democracy and for that believe in, in values, these values. Uh, and also music became even more important to have this safe place where we don't need to talk, but we can really deal with it like on a personal way and to really gather people together around the music and it gives us also so much hope for the good and remember that there is hope but we need also to fight for it for the democracy that it's not something that we can take it for granted because there is Russia that tries to take it us from from us so of course the war has dominated my life <laughs> since uh, since February and uh, it has been also for me really important uh, to be also active as a volunteer. So I collect with my brothers money in Finland with Finnish people and uh, we buy cars we, with this money. We load them with everything possible that people need in Ukraine and frontline workers these cars goes to the front lines so that people can evac evacuate people, they can bring help. There's a lot of cars that, of course, drive into mines, get shelled, so it's a, it's a huge need for, the, for that. And uh, we've uh, driven already five relief loads. I've drove myself twice to Ukraine with these relief loads because it was for us very important also that the um, people who give us money, that they see that we really give it directly to to Ukrainians and um, I've also stayed myself there and conducted local orchestras um, and it has been really important to show Ukrainians from my side that I'm not afraid I'm going there I'm helping them I'm staying with them we're doing concerts together 
Of course, the classical music and art scenery is completely crippled there. You cannot have a normal season there. So um, orchestras try to have a couple of concerts maybe in a month since this autumn. But it, it really depends on the situation. People don't have money to buy tickets. I don't even understand how the musicians, to be honest, survive there because, of course, government cannot anymore fund in the same way orchestras. Um, but uh, still, we made concert and it's such an important moment for us was to play actually a concert there because we need to have uh, moments of normality in a situation where there's nothing normal. Yeah. There, it's such an important to, for a moment, just to put this all horror behind us, to gather, to play good music, to clap, to have joy in coming together, yeah. you know, and it gives us so much strength uh, to go forward. So they have been a really, really powerful moments also for me uh, to be um, with with Ukrainians in Ukraine uh, during this uh, unspeakable time of pain, and I I, I really hope that um, people don't get tired around the world, because when we can take a rest, the war machine works, and it's such an important that we all are united because this is not politics this is a human right thing we can all be united in this front line and really fight together with ukrainians and help ukrainians there are so many ways we can do it you know and first and the most important thing is that we cannot find ourselves being tired and say for example that we are tired of reading news we, we need to, to be together with Ukrainians in this. And I'm, I'm so grateful, for example, for United States for all the help. And I was so happy w uh, on the first day I was walking here. I saw so many Ukrainian flags. It means so much to me and to Ukrainians. And, um, and uh, Ukrainian people are so courageous. I, it's, it's difficult even to describe. And where do they find this? Uh, courageousness in themselves. Sometimes it feels that they are calming me down, you know, that, yeah. you know, Dahlia, just make sure that Western countries don't get tired, that they help us. We will fight here until the last person, but please don't forget about us. Fight with us together, uh, make, spread the world what's going on in Ukraine and how people can, can help us. And this gives a lot of power to me and uh, hope uh, and energy to continue to speak for Ukraine and uh, to to collect money and to help them. And uh, I know that Ukraine will win and we will together win. Stastevska led the Chicago Symphony Orchestra through a series of concerts in early December. She says she really enjoyed her time here. I heard so many great things about the city and just walking here around. I mean, this city is so beautiful. And of course, it's also a dream come true to work with such a legendary orchestra, with a legendary history, recordings that I've used to grow up listening to. So I feel really happy and lucky to work here and to make music with these wonderful musicians. And I know that we will have really exciting uh, concerts together. Dahlia, thanks so much. 
Thank you. That's renowned conductor Dalia Stasevska. If you're an appreciator of classical music, you'll likely be hearing that name for years to come. She'll be leading the New York Philharmonic later this week, and you can find more information about her at her website, daliastasevska.com. And a quick reminder, if you tune into the art section every Sunday morning, make sure to visit the program's website over at theartsection.org, and there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek and joining me remotely is theater critic carrie reed jonathan abarbanel is on assignment just one dueling critic this week but uh, a great one so glad to have carrie with us the original broadway production of the best little whorehouse in texas was nominated for a bunch of tony awards in 1979 it then went on tour was adapted into a movie starring Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds, and today is revived by theaters all over the world. Locally, the theater company formerly known as Theo Ubique, now just Theo, is presenting the musical at its performance space in Evanston. Directed here by Landry Fleming, the production is running for another two weeks. And before we get into this production, I have to say... One of my favorite holiday songs of all time is Hard Candy Christmas. Yes, absolutely. And I I wonder if that's part of why they decided to open this before the holiday. Well, I was going to say, you know, I play the Dolly Parton version all the time in uh, December, but I've never seen the best little whorehouse in Texas, so I had no idea that that's where the song originated from. That's right. You know, I think a lot of people might be surprised at how many songs they do know from this show. The one that, of course, sort of sets the tone, if you've seen the movie at all with Dolly Parton, is the one that describes the chicken ranch, and it's a little old bitty pissant country place. Now, the history of uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is from history. Uh, There was a a place called the Chicken Ranch outside of LaGrange, Texas, not to be confused with the Chicago suburb of the same name. It was an illegal brothel that everybody just sort of knew was there, and they, they all chose to, you know, let it operate and do its own thing. From about 1905 to about 1973, I believe there's a ZZ Top song called LaGrange in honor of the Chicken Ranch, and it was closed down in the early 70s. Apparently, the part that is true, that is replicated in the story of the musical, is that, you know, a local journalist who decided to kind of uh, raise, raise a stink about the fact that this place was operating in plain sight with apparently the blessings of the state and local government, enough people got upset about it, they finally did close it down. So in some ways, it's a very old-fashioned, you know, musical about, you know, a small, struggling you know, group of people going up against the powers that be. But what has happened here, I would say, in the Feo, or Feo version, as you rightly pointed out, Gary, they've changed the name. 
is that there are resonances with what's going on now, I think, particularly with anti-trans legislation, the increased attention to anti-LGBT rights across the country. Um, a lot of that's accomplished because a lot of the quote-unquote working girls in the cast are played by non-binary actors, and that's in Landry Fleming's production. And I think that's something that Theo in particular has been doing more of. I know that that was also the case this past summer with their production of Once Upon a Mattress, which I did not get to see, but I know that that was you know, a very conscious and intentional thing in their casting. So yes, it's you know, still set in the era in which it was originally written in the early 70s, but there, it, it feels like it's a little bit more resonant, I think, that just, just by virtue of that casting. It's also you know, a lovely, intimate production. We've talked about that a lot on this show. I think Jonathan and I talked about Kakandi's wonderful Sweeney Todd, you know, being in a small, intimate basement setting. The Theo uh, space, if people have not been there, at the Howard Street Theater up in Evanston, you know, it's small, it's flex use, and uh, in the set design by set designer Manuel Ortiz, we really do feel like the Chicken Ranch is just sort of a homey, old-fashioned Victorian farmhouse where, you know, certain things happen and everybody just kind of lets it go and they're live and let live about it. I think Chicken Ranch came, from my understanding, is that during the Depression, some of the guests, and Miss Mona, who is the madam presiding over it, played by Dolly Parton so memorably in the movie, it insists on calling them guests. Not customers, not clients, they are guests. Some of them, when financial hard times hit, could only pay with livestock or live chickens, and so, you know, a chicken in the pot being worth better than nothing, you know, that became an item of trade there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I won't say it's the most cutting-edge musical you'll ever see, but I think there, it's presented here with such loving attention to detail and a real investment in, you know, the heart of the story, which is that in this town of fairly limited opportunities, at a time of fairly limited opportunities for some of the women in this story, this maybe does actually present the best and safest option. You know, um, it's very clear they're not going to be abused. They're not going to be, you know, the, Miss Mona, does, you know, her, in, the, in the aforementioned song, she's very clear about her lists of do's and don'ts, and she runs a tight and tidy ship. And, you know, there's, there's also, I think, some contrast to some of the people in the town. You know, there's a wonderful uh, number called Dotsi May. Dotsi May is the waitress at the local diner, and you can kind of see her limitations, and she's probably one of the smartest people in town, but nobody ever really wants to listen to her. At least she has good, you know, folk wisdom, and as the town fathers are all meeting in her diner to talk about what do we do about the chicken ranch, oh my gosh, there's all this outside agitation, you kind of wish they would just turn to Dotsie May, and maybe she'd have some answers for them, but that's not going to happen, so... The main relationship here, as it was, as it has always been, is between Miss Mona, played here beautifully by Ann Sheridan Smith, and uh, Sheriff Ederal Dodd, played by Mark Prince. And they've been longtime friends. Once long ago, they had a romantic interlude. Um, and there's a beautiful moment where Miss Mona is talking about that, going to Galveston on the eve of the John F. Kennedy inauguration and having like an actual date date with the sheriff. Um, no, and you get a sense that that represented not just a promise of a romantic future for her, but also, you know, the promise of the torch being passed to a new generation that came out with the uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, inauguration speech. And I think that's kind of a little mournful undertone. You know, it's set in the 1973. It was originally done in the late 70s. You know, this idea that this musical, I think, maybe finds new audiences because it's talking about 
an evergreen subject. The dreams that we have, the ways we see ourselves, either as individuals or as a country. And then, you know, as so often happens, when the politicians get a hold of it, when people start, you know, turning puritanical for the sake of ratings, for the sake of votes, then, you know, innocent, you know, basically innocent people who are just trying to make a living get caught in the crossfire and are, you know, demonized or driven out of town because of it. But that makes it sound heavier than it actually is. <laughs> it's a little bit of a mournful show. I will say, if you've seen the movie, the ending of the stage musical is not quite the same as the movie, and I don't want to, you know, go too much into detail on that. But I think that it's, it's also a little bit hopeful, you know. Um, and it's also, I think, a great piece that really respects the choices of the women who work at the chicken ranch. We get, a, you know, even the smallest characters, we get a little bit of a sense of who they are, what brought them there. And so they're not, you know, presented as sort of one-dimensional good-time girls or as, you know, innately broken, troubled, abused women. Um, they may have not all the best options in the world, but they have agency. And I think that that's a really, um, you know, pretty forward-thinking distinction that we see in the show. And without getting uh, too technical, but just your thoughts on, you know, something like uh, the best little whorehouse in Texas, we might think of as a, kind of a big uh, Broadway type musical with, with lots sure. of extras uh, and like a big cast. But here being presented in a, a storefront theater, what types of things do they do to kind of make this work? You know, they have a, well, they have the, the all hat, no cattle band. I love that name. And it's under the uh, direction of musical director Isabella Isherwood. And it almost really feels like they're the house band at Miss Mona's with their fiddles violin, guitar, bass, drums, but it almost feels like they've just set up in the parlor. You know, um, as I said, it's like a comfortable kind of lived-in environment in the set, but it's not glitzy. You know, um, the, the women are wearing lingerie, and some of it's more like Frederick of Hollywood. Some of it actually you know, almost looks like they've, you know, taken a bandana and made a little corset for themselves. <laughs> you know, it's, very, it's not a uniform kind of look, which I think helps with the idea that you know, these are just a few women who work here, and they're not—they're they're not the Rockettes. Some of the, the themes of the story that you know, we actually are a part of this community, right? Uh, This—the Chicken Ranch. You all have known us for years. You've all been coming here. The first act ends with the Aggie song, and it's the winning champion football team from Texas A&M coming as they have apparently for generations to celebrate. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> you know, in Miss Mona's girls, and. You know, that's really part of it. It's like, wait a minute, now we're the outcasts, but we have been a rite of passage for young men in this community. We have been good citizens. You know, we're not out there causing trouble. You know, we we pretty much keep it, you know, keep it to this house, and they're not out on the streets, and they're not they're not drinking, they're not drugging, and it's, um, you know, so there's like a sense of betrayal, I think, that maybe feels more poignant when you're feeling like you're sitting right in this room you know, right in the front parlor with them or on the front porch, um, or maybe in a bigger, and I've not seen it in a really big production, so I need to make that clear. But, um, yeah, I, I think it really does play up the sense that this is a community. We may not be doing things that everybody approves of, but we're not hurting anybody here. So, And then in a sense, is the, there's this reporter who's kind of on this crusade. Is he kind of the villain? He's a big tabloid journalist yeah um you know he is kind of all he is all hat no cattle <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know he's causing trouble and of course the local state senator gets involved even though the state senator is the one who's bringing the boys from the aggie football team to the house and it really causes a dilemma 
for the sheriff, who would prefer to not get involved at all, first of all, because he's friends with Mona, and second of all, because he just kind of doesn't see that it's anybody's business. But eventually, you know, even even he cannot um, be kept, you know, from, from doing what the higher-ups are uh, demanding that he do, which is to try to ch- shut, the, shut the joint down. A couple random notes. I've had uh, Isabella Isherwood on, on my show. She's a very talented uh, jazz vocalist and pianist, so it's good to hear she's involved with this production. Oh, that's interesting. I, see, I did not know that, so yeah. And then the other thing, I was you know researching the, the history of the show for our conversation, and I saw they did a, a Broadway revival in, I think, 2001, and Anne Margaret played Ms. Mona, and then uh, WKRP in Cincinnati's uh, Gary Sandy played the sheriff. That's, you know, I'd forgotten about that, but now that rings a bell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bring that up because one of my first plays is uh, my grandparents took me to Drury Lane in Oakbrook to see The Music Man, and Gary Sandy was playing oh the, my the Music Man, and I thought it was so cool because, you know, I watched reruns of WKRP sure. in Cincinnati, and so, yeah, anyway. So that's... he really was moving town to town up and down the dive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Theo's production of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas continues through January 29th. And this has been running since December 2nd, and I I just was on their website, and one of their recent performances sold out, so I guess it's still doing well. Yeah, and um, I should also mention, I can't remember which restaurant they're partnering with, but if you've been there before, you know they also offer dinner uh, option. They do ask that you... uh, place the order for that at the time that you reserve but you get like a three i think it's like for an extra thirty dollars you can have an extra like a three-course dinner added so if you really are looking for dinner and a show this is this is a great great place to take advantage of that excellent carrie thanks so much for for talking with us this week oh oh you're welcome we'll talk to you next week i still have a dream It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. My name is Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Decades after his death, King's words still provide comfort and inspire in dark times. Your life's blueprint must be a commitment to the eternal principles of beauty, love, and justice. Don't allow anybody to pull you so low as to make you hate them. Don't allow anybody to cause you to lose your self-respect to the point that you do not struggle for justice. However young you are, you have a responsibility to seek to make your nation a better nation in which to live. You have a responsibility to seek to make life better for everybody. One of my favorite stories from the past few years is when I caught up with a local photographer responsible for some of the most candid photos of Dr. King that were ever captured. 86-year-old Bernie Kleina has spent the majority of his life fighting discrimination. For over four decades, he led the Hope 
Fair Housing Center in Wheaton. But before he worked to end housing discrimination in DuPage County, Kleiner was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. The Wheaton resident was a priest in 1965 when he was inspired to get involved in the civil rights movement after seeing footage of the violence taking place in Selma, Alabama. For over four decades, he led the Hope Fair Housing Center in Wheaton. But before he worked to end housing discrimination in DuPage County, Klein was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. The Wheaton resident was a priest in 1965 when he was inspired to get involved in the civil rights movement after seeing footage of violence taking place in Selma, Alabama. What moved me to get involved was when I saw men and women being tear-gassed and beaten and trampled by horses in their attempted march from Selma to Montgomery. I felt that I just couldn't uh, continue watching it on TV and not doing anything else. And so um, I, with uh, another teacher, went down to uh, Selma and really that uh, changed uh, my life uh, forever. I did go down there thinking that I could do something for Selma and, and the people living there, but I realized pretty quickly that Selma did more for me than I could ever do for the people living there. Right. So when you talk about what you learned in Selma, did you then bring those lessons back with you to the Chicago area and get involved in the civil rights efforts taking place here? Right. When I returned to Chicago sometime afterwards, Dr. King came to uh, Chicago, and I uh, participated in uh, the marches and demonstrations. But I also realized that there was a lot of uh, violence against uh, Dr. King and, uh, and the marchers. And so I decided to try to document photographically what was going on. And uh, I was able to do that to some extent. And I guess the rest is history. Was photography uh, an interest of yours, or did you pick it up as a, a result of wanting to document what was going on? Well, the irony is it really wasn't an interest of mine. Uh, before I photographed uh, Dr. King and other civil rights heroes, as well as those who were trying to disrupt the marches, uh, before I did that, I only photographed family and vacations, which is why I photographed Dr. King in color, and they turn out to be now uh, some of the first color photos taken of, of Dr. King, certainly in uh, Chicago. In 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. began organizing marches and events in Chicago focused specifically on fair housing. With those 65 marches and, and demonstrations that Dr. King was a part of, the focus is, was really on fair housing or what was then known as, as open housing? That's correct. When Dr. King came to uh, Chicago, his focus was on open housing, which we now call fair housing, and ending racial and economic uh, segregation. And uh, because the focus was on housing, he was treated uh, very badly. And even uh, before one of his marches in Chicago, he was hit in the head with a rock. Dr. King was part of uh, marches and demonstrations in the summer of 65 and in 66 with the, the launch of the Chicago Freedom Movement. Did things intensify in 66? Things did get intensified because Dr. King and his staff 
conducted tests uh, for fair housing purposes. They uh, sent in testers to real estate offices, and uh, much to no one's surprise, when whites went in, they were shown a number of of options to buy, and when blacks went in, they were told nothing was available. And so it was, uh, I think, especially because of that focus on open housing that uh, there was so much violence in the neighborhood, mainly in Marquette Park and Gage Park. There were, of course, others uh, in other parts of the city, but those are the ones that I believe uh, were the most uh, violent. By moving north and by concerning itself with equality in housing and employment, the civil rights movement began to encounter increased resistance, the so-called white backlash. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. How do you feel about this reception, sir? Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. But the march will go on anyway? Oh, very definitely. We can't stop the march. We've gone going on in a few minutes. You feel you're in a closed society, Dr. King, here in the southwest side of Chicago? Oh, yes. It's definitely a closed society, and we're going to make it an open society. And we feel that we have to do it this way. I marched in one of the roughest, most violent demonstrations where uh, uh, we were surrounded by uh, hundreds of, of people who uh, objected to what we were doing. They threw rocks and bottles and cherry bombs, and uh, a lot of the people in our march were hit and had to be uh, taken to the hospital. But the marches then, and in that one in particular, and certainly the ones in Selma, in, in a way they were almost like a religious procession. Uh, they're very disciplined, and even though while we were in those marches, it was extremely dangerous, and uh, <laughs> we were certainly hit numerous times, but we kept it up, and uh, I think because of that discipline, our message was clear and uh, progress was made. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. We're revisiting my conversation with Wheaton-based photographer Bernie Kleina. We talked about his experiences documenting civil rights events that took place in the 60s. I'm looking at one of your photos from the summer of 66 of a march, and you can see what I think is marchers with Dr. King on the left and then a, like a line of police in their cars and then a group on the right. Now, is that group on the right the opposition, the ones that were getting violent, or were those people with you? One of my photographs show the marchers walking down, not quite the middle of the street. They were surrounded on one side by police officers and on the other side by other police officers. And then on the sidewalks, 
there would be uh, people that were um, throwing rocks and, and cherry bombs and, and uh, other things, whatever they could get a hold of. So it, it was a, a difficult time. I have to say that in uh, Chicago at that time, uh, the police were really not that uh, helpful or protective of Dr. King or of the other uh, marchers. The important thing for people opposing the march and opposing Dr. King was that when they threw rocks that they didn't hit a police officer. If they did, then they would be beaten to the ground. But even though we were surrounded by police, it really didn't seem to stop the, uh, the violence. Kleiner participated in several Chicago-area civil rights events, though he only took pictures at a handful of them, but the images he did capture turned out to be quite unique. Kleiner began working for the Hope Fair Housing Center in the late 60s and never really did anything with his collection of photos. It wasn't until around 2006 that he decided to turn the pictures into an exhibit. My photos on the uh, Chicago Freedom Movement, uh, many of them are at the Smithsonian Museum in uh, Washington, and uh, they and my other photos have been on exhibit in about uh, 10 different uh, museums uh, around the country because they uh, uh, tell a story uh, that uh, at least uh, many people uh, are unaware of. They found their way into a number of, of museums. Rhea Combs, photography curator of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, said that uh, my photographs really talk about a moment that has been lost in a lot of conversations around civil rights. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, my photos are helpful in people un better understanding the past. That was photographer Bernie Kleina. You can check out some of his photos of Dr. King on the artsection.org. Just search MLK or Kleina in the search box at the top, and you can learn more about Kleina at his website, bernardkleina.com. You're tuned into the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. And this is the Northern Illinois University Jazz Orchestra. It's a special weekend for the student group. The NIU Jazz Orchestra is one of only nine collegiate bands competing in Jazz at Lincoln Center's 2023 Jack Rudin Jazz Competition. The Invitational brings together the best university jazz programs and student musicians from around the country. The competition kicked off last night and will culminate this evening, but NIU Jazz Orchestra director Reggie Thomas says unlike a sporting event, there really aren't any losers at a competition like this. He says the experience these student musicians are getting is the real prize. I recently caught up with Thomas as he was making final preparations for the orchestra's performances. The Jazz at Lincoln Center Jack Rudin Jazz Championship, the 2023 version, is taking place this weekend. Northern Illinois University's Jazz Orchestra is one of nine collegiate jazz programs competing. How does the selection process work? I read that it's an invitational, so is there any type of application, or do they just reach out to you? No, there's not. This is, this is totally invitational. Unlike the high school portion, the essentially Ellington program, 
that goes through an entire tape screening process um, with schools from all across the country uh, submitting to be selected as one of 15 finalist bands. For the college version, the Jack Rudin, this is by invitation uh, only. So I do count that as a great honor to be selected among some very well-established and and uh, great programs out there. You know, the likes of Peabody and Michigan State and Temple University. So, and the directors of those programs and those bands happen to be uh, great colleagues and friends of mine as well. So it's it's great for all of us to be there together and to share what we do in our respective programs. Yeah, what a tremendous honor. I would imagine your your students must have been pretty excited when they found out. Uh, yes, I think they are pretty excited. Um, we've been having fun in our preparations. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to make sure that we keep at the forefront of us because you know, this is a great honor. Please do not take this the wrong way. It's a wonderful honor to be chosen to compete in this. But in music, I'm not really a competition type of person. I think music exists differently than do sports. I understand that for the sake of motivating our students, we sometimes have to dangle that type of carrot in, in these competitions. But one of the things that I remind our students that the, that the only people that we're competing against is to be the best versions of ourselves when we go there. What we want to do is go and represent this is who we are and this is what we do. So if there's anything in our preparation that's different from what we do all of the time, then we're not really being true to the music in ourselves. That's what I'm trying to instill in them. We're not preparing for this competition. We're preparing the way that we respect and prepare for playing this music, and we want to go there and share it with everyone else. And that was one of my questions of the preparation for this differed in any way, any extra rehearsals? Well, now, and having said all that, yes, we have had to have extra rehearsals just because the requirements of it uh, and the music that we're going to be performing was not necessarily the music that had been selected at the beginning of the semester, that this is what we would be working on. We actually found out about this opportunity uh, after our semester was already going, and then uh, even later got the list of here's the required music to choose from. So that did uh, change a bit of what we had to do in our semester just to make sure we had enough time on that music. And the fact that this competition happens before our spring semester starts. So everyone has been away on holiday break and, and getting away from the grind of the school and to get ramped back up to uh, travel out there. The band did come back early uh, to get a couple of rehearsals in this past week. As far as how the competition works, I was reading the, the schedule. A lot of it takes place on Sunday. The orchestra performs a set early in the day. Yes. So there's a couple of things that are going on. Um, one way that this differs from the high school competition that Jazz Lincoln Center hosts is that there is a combo showcase on Saturday. So our schedule on Saturday really is doing our rehearsals. We get to have um, some sessions with the members of the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra who will be providing workshop sessions during the day. There will be a Q&A with Wendell Marcellus during the day. 
And then on Saturday evening, uh, each group has a representative small group combo that performs in a showcase that's not a part of the competition, but really just to showcase uh, small small group music. The competition, uh, as you stated, is all on Sunday, and there are in in the morning the first half of the groups perform, and then there's a lunch break, and in the afternoon uh, the other the final uh, four groups perform. And then from that, there's a selection process of three groups that will move on to the finals and perform on Sunday night. So that's the competition itself all happens on Sunday. And as you've already referenced, you're not a fan of the, the competition aspect of it, but the experience for for these students has to be tremendously valuable to, uh, just the whole weekend. The experience is, is extremely valuable for this reason. The music community and even uh, more specifically the jazz community is a smaller world than we often like to think that it is and these are the times that we are meeting the other people who are are doing the things that we are trying to do people who are going to become important to your life later people that you're going to uh, travel with tour with perform with record with they're meeting those people now, people with like interest. Many years ago, there was a festival that was sponsored by Downbeat magazine called the Music Fest USA. I don't know if you remember that from back in the 80s, uh, but Music Fest was a big festival that was held in uh, Chicago, uh, usually at the McCormick. And I ran across a program recently of uh, one of the years that I was involved in that as a, a student participant. And seeing all of the people who won awards that year. And it was interesting looking back at that because the names that I saw that I was there with, I was listed as an award winner along with people like Roy Hargrove, Christian McBride, Joey DeFrancesco. And the point is, is, you know, none of us, this was before Roy Hargrove was Roy Hargrove, you know uh-huh. what I mean? So we we didn't know at that time. We were just like-minded people going to this festival to meet other like-minded people, to show what we could do to get opportunities. That's how I'm trying to describe it for our students. So they're going to meet people that are just as interested in pursuing this as a career as they are. Uh, they're going to make friendships that um, they weren't expecting to make that may last a lifetime. They're going to meet people who may and will impact their lives going forward. And that's, I think, the beautiful and valuable thing to take away from this. Definitely. For my uh, listeners who are curious and want to watch, I think there's there's a streaming option. People can go to jazzlive.com to watch uh, the Sunday portion of the, the competition. But beyond the, the Jack Rudin uh, Jazz Championship, uh, for folks in the Chicago area the, that are interested, where can they see the, the Northern Illinois University Jazz Orchestra? Well, they can catch us hot off of uh, the heels of this competition. Uh, we will be at the end of this month uh, in Downers Grove um, doing our annual concert with Downers Grove North and South High Schools. I believe it's going to be held at Downers Grove South. Uh, that is on January 31, if that is Tuesday, I do believe. And then on February 2nd, we host uh, our own jazz festival which is a non-competitive festival at NIU. It's called our NIU Jazz Day, where we have about 15 bands um, 
high school uh, area bands that come over to our school. We will perform for them uh, with our guest artist, Erica Von Kleist, the wonderful saxophonist who's coming in, and clinic and adjudicate those groups throughout the day. Uh, then February 4th, Saturday, um, we're performing an annual concert that we do called Jazz at the Egyptian, the Egyptian Theater in DeKalb, Illinois. We do that with um, the two local high schools, DeKalb High School and Sycamore High School. So those things are coming up right away, and then we have our regular recurring spring concerts, one on March 8th, and the other, which is on, I want to say it is April 20, if I have my date correct. That is a Thursday. So we've got a lot of stuff coming up for when we catch us in the area. <laughs> I was going to say, you got a busy winter, for sure. Um, we really do. <laughs> well, you know, I was, when I got the... Uh, the announcement in my my email, and I looked at the uh, the schools participating, and I saw Northern Illinois. I was uh, excited. So best of luck, uh, Reggie, with with your trip to New York. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you. That was Reggie Thomas. He's the director of the Northern Illinois University Jazz Orchestra and coordinator of the school's jazz studies program. If you're interested, you can stream some of the Jack Rudin Jazz Competition performances later today. The first one starts at 10 a.m. at jazzlive.com. There is a fee to access the stream. And if you're interested in learning more about the NIU Jazz Orchestra and where they're performing, go to niu.edu music. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay warm. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.